Welcome back to Wise Words, the podcast where we talk to thought leaders, innovators, educators, and artists about any and all things to do with education. On this episode, we feature a conversation with Chimamanda Adichie. Chimamanda Adichie is an award-winning author from Nigeria. In addition to best-selling novels like Americana and Half of a Yellow Sun, Chimamanda also writes short stories and nonfiction, most recently on feminism from the perspective of an African woman. Our conversation was wide-ranging and touched on a number of topics from the legacy of colonialism in education systems to the markers of identity and how these change over time and space, as well as on the importance of literature and storytelling. Our discussion was recorded on the margins of the World Innovation Summit for Education 2017 in Doha, and so we were unfortunately under some time constraints. Chimamanda is an engaging conversationalist, and I felt that we could have gone on talking for a while more. I hope that we will have the opportunity to speak with her again. As always, we welcome your feedback on iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a rating as it will help others find us. You can also communicate with us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets using the hashtag wisepod. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with uh, Chimamanda Adichie. Chimamanda, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you. Uh, Chimamanda, you've become uh, well-known around the world as uh, an award-winning author, uh, an English author, uh, uh, writing in English, uh, but a Nigerian and a woman first. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the themes that you touch on in your writing. but before we go there, perhaps, uh, if you don't mind sharing with us a little bit about your personal journey as a writer. When did you start uh, writing? When did you decide this is what you wanted to do? Uh, and perhaps a little bit about the, the reason why. Um, I have been writing since I was old enough to spell. So it's very hard for me to talk about when I decided to be a writer because I don't know when I didn't want to be a writer. And when I was, I think when I was six, I I was certain that I was a writer. Excellent. (laughs) It didn't occur to me that I wasn't. So I think I was, um, I I like to think that, I think some writers are made and some are born. I like to think that I was born one, that Mm -hmm. I I was fortunate to have this gift. I was just drawn to it. I think for me, the question is when I made the decision to walk for it, because I think there's one thing, it's one thing to be born with talent. It's another to, to choose to use it. Um, I think maybe when I was about, I know I wrote my first book, book yep. in quotes, when I was maybe nine. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that was that um, I think the thing that was particularly important in my in my what I like to call my journey was that I was a reader. I was a very early reader, and I was deeply drawn to books. Reading was the Reading was the love of my childhood. I read everything. Okay. I read everything I could find. I read children's books. I read books that children had no business reading. Okay. And Give us an example, maybe. <laughs> I think I will not. <laughs> okay. Um, I and and I think that I think that reading nurtured my writing. I think I really do believe that it's impossible to be a good writer if you're not a good reader. The reading okay. was important to me, and I started writing very early. And when I started writing, I wrote the sorts of stories that I was reading. Yeah. And because I was reading mostly foreign books, mostly English, yeah. but some American, when I started to write, I was writing about white people who lived in England and who okay. ate apples and who played in the snow. 
And I, of course, was this child growing up in Southeast Nigeria where there was no snow yep. and we ate mangoes. Yep. <laughs> and, and I think that just for me now looking back is about how, how, how books and stories m have such an impact, especially on young people. Yeah. And also for me, proof of why we need to have diverse representations in literature. But, but anyway, so that's how, that's my sort of how my, that's my beginning. Um, so I've been writing since I was, since I, I was old enough to spell. I, my first published book happened when I was 17. That's remarkable. Yes. That's remarkable. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, um, were you read to, do you remember being read to first as a child? <laughs> no. Okay. No, I don't All remember right. that. And, and okay. it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. <laughs> where, um, when I was growing up, yeah. and I grew up, I grew up on a university campus. My father was a professor yeah. of statistics, so it wasn't a lit wasn't a necessarily literary household, but uh -huh. we read books. Yeah, um, and so and so in my family, books were important. You were supposed yeah. to read, but I, I don't remember being read to being read as to, a child. Okay. Yeah, now it's it's. I mean, the the reason I ask you is because, uh, yeah, as an education initiative, we. Uh, we, we see a lot of projects that, that promote reading. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of them sort of start with, with the early years and having, having uh, adults read or, or older children read to younger children. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. No, I think we need something. Yeah. Um, I have a daughter who's two. Yeah. And I read to her. I started okay. reading to her when she was two days old. Wow! <laughs> and um, because I had read all the research yeah. about you know if you read to them, that, so I so I, I read to her. Um, I don't remember being read to, but I I read yeah. to her. So I think that there must be some value in. Yeah. In and and did you did you have a favorite genre in in terms of, of when you, I know you read it? You said you read a lot of things, but mm. any particular genre that? I think when I, I mean I I had phases. So when yeah. I was when I was quite young when I was a little child I loved these British books in which children went on adventures yeah the famous five yes and secret seven and yes yeah. I loved them I think I, we read some of the same books I wanted to be one of the famous five yeah. I wanted to go off into castles yeah and find smugglers in the yeah. dungeon you know yeah. and because I also used to wonder why aren't these kids' parents telling them to stay home yeah. and study? <laughs> why do they get to go on with yeah. these adventures? So yeah. I, I love those. And then when I got a bit older, I went through a phase of really liking terrible romance novels. Okay. Um, I think every I skipped that phase. <laughs> oh, you missed out! How terrible! Um, and yeah. <laughs> and when I look back and think about the things I loved, I'm just I, I, I'm utterly grossed out. But but I did. I had a phase of, of really liking yeah. romance, and then I had a phase of liking crime. Mm -hmm. yeah. which now I find uh, unbearable. I just can't. Oh, really? I can't yeah, okay. Sadly, I just can't <laughs> do crime anymore. I can't. Yeah. And now I, I don't think I... Now I just like stories that have psychological depth. I like stories that sort of teach me something about human beings. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what genre mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, I, I, I have to admit I, I was... Uh, I, I'm a recent... Uh, uh, I don't know if convert's the right word, but... I've, recently began um, reading your work and and when I was trying to choose okay which book should I should I read I was I was drawn to your novel half of a yellow Sun because it had sort of this historical mm. and and political dimension to it which you know which are sort of topics that that interest me and I found you know I found it interesting that you were um, that, that you're writing a very human story set against the backdrop of some you know very very important events 
in Nigerian history. Do you, do you want to mm. maybe talk a little bit about that? I, I, I like to say that I grew up in the shadow of Biafra. Uh-huh. That my parents, um, so when Biafra seceded from Nigeria in yeah. 1967, my parents were just swept up with everything. My father had recently come back to Nigeria from the U.S. where he got his Ph.D. Yeah. And he was part of that generation of Nigerians, um, and I think of West Africans in general, and actually of Africans, who were sort of very positive about the post-independence mm-hmm. new world and wanted to contribute. And, and and then the war started, and my parents lost everything they owned, and they yeah. lost their fathers. Both my grandfathers died in refugee camps. Wow. And, and so I was born seven years after the war ended. Yeah. But I remember just thinking as a child that this shadow still hung over us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was haunted by it. I wanted to try and make sense of that history for myself. And yeah. also because nobody taught me about it in school. Nigeria hides that part of our history. But I, I, okay. I, think, I think most countries do that with parts of their histories yeah, that they're not I, comfortable I, with. I don't think Nigeria's alone. <laughs> yes. And, and so I think there was a part of me that also wanted to tell the story for my generation of mm-hmm. Nigerians. And, and because I believe so much in the power of storytelling, I really think that the best way to, to, to learn history is through stories. Yeah. So I did a lot of research. I wanted to read everything that had been published about Biafra. And I like to think I did. Um, yeah, it, I, it, it feels very real. I, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm reading through it now. And I, I went and looked at archives yeah. in, in England. I, I interviewed people. I listened to um, broadcasts from that period. I just immersed myself in mm-hmm. that period. And it, it took a long time. That book took me six years of, um, of emotional labor. Wow. Right. Is it yeah. part biographical, if I may ask? It's, I mean, the, I, I think I like to say that almost every story in that book came from someone. Okay. You know, it happened yeah. to somebody. Yeah. My father was the the backbone of my research because mm-hmm. I, I had the facts, but I wanted to hear the human stories. Yeah. And my father was very generous with his, his storytelling. So were his friends who all yeah. lived through the war. But And so they would tell me all these stories. And actually, I have a lot of things I didn't use because... Mm-hmm. I didn't want to burden the book with research. You know, sometimes yeah. you read a book and you realize the writers threw in everything they found out into the book. Yeah. I wanted it to remain human. Well, I, it, it yeah. succeeded wildly, if I may say so. I'm in, glad you think in, so. In, in, <laughs> in that way, and and it's it's. it's I mean, I I grew up in uh, in Cyprus. I'm I'm uh, separate by by heritage, and we have our own colonial and post-colonial mm. um, history in, involving a. Uh, uh, also a conflict and, and and some tragedies and I and I, I can say that it, it kind of speaks to me as well mm. um, at a mm. at a personal level mm. um, and it, and it's interesting because you know people you know people look at at Cypriots and they say okay well you you know you guys are are white and you know mm. at, at a certain level maybe maybe we are but then we have this also this colonial yeah. heritage so mm. in a sense I think we we straddle uh, mm. both worlds in in some respects. You you touch I think on on sort of post colonial countries you know st- struggling to a certain extent mm. with with their identity and if I if I can read something back to you from the book I think it, it I think it's the lead character that quotes this but it says the real tragedy of our post colonial world is not that the majority of people had no say in whether or not they wanted this new world rather it's that the majority have not been given the tools to negotiate this new world. Mm. What were what were you were you thinking about education in that in that quote? What what was your or was it more than that? 
Yes. I mean, education is part of it, but it was certainly more than that. And that, by the way, is my opinion. So sometimes I sneak in my opinions and have well, my characters. Course, right. <laughs> so I believe that I agree completely yeah. with my character. <clears throat> it's education, but it's also... Um, it's also larger than that. And so it's not just the kind of education, because I think, I mean, for me, education is a very interesting subject because I often think it's not just what you learn in school. I mean, so when people say, oh, so-and-so is educated, my question is, well, what, what kind of education was it? Yep. Because I think that, th that my father's generation of Africans, so my father was born in 1932, and so he was sort of the first wave from my part of Nigeria to be educated. And that education involved, in addition to learning math and all of those other useful skills and English, yeah. is also learning a certain kind of, um, a certain sort of way in which you're, you're supposed to debase yourself. In which, because I think what, one of the wonderful things that colonialism did, and I say wonderful with great sarcasm, mm -hmm. is that it taught people how to lose respect for who and what they were yeah and that in some ways it managed to get people to be complicit in this themselves yeah and so i think that in many post-colonial societies even the educate pe educated people don't know what the hell to do with with their countries yeah. because you know you're, you're educated when you're taught that you know, england is the center of the world um everything pre-christian and pre-christian africa was evil and terrible um, and so, so there's a sense in which self-sufficiency yeah. isn't part of your your educational DNA. You you then think that you have to look for answers outside of yourself, and I and I think that's actually been the tragedy of many of the of yeah. the countries uh, on my continent. And um, so I feel as though that it's not that Nigeria. I mean, I, I do think that Nigeria, as as I think the same of many other post-colonial societies, was not set up to succeed. Yeah. But I think the extent of the failure. Yeah. Is, is, a, is a Nigerian responsibility, but it's a Nigerian responsibility because Nigerians don't have the tools. That yeah. we, you know, um, and I don't mean to say this as sort of, oh, all Africans are victims, but simply to say that th the structural things, yeah. I, I really would love to redo the curriculum. Okay, <laughs> good. S say more about that. <laughs> what, what would you change? Oh, Lord. I, um, well, first of all, I would do a lot of, and, and I say this, I should maybe just um, back off and say that I, I think education also teaches, in addition to you know, math and yeah. English, education can teach pride. Mm -hmm. Education can teach self-esteem. Yes. And I think that to do that, you know, I, I would teach um, pre-colonial African history. Okay. I wouldn't teach African history as something that started when, quote-unquote, the white man came. Arrived, yeah. yeah. Um, I would... Um, not teach me that. So I visited some schools in Nigeria, and you know, Nigerians are very sort of proud of their children going to schools that do what they call teach the British curriculum, mm -hmm. which I suppose is all well and good. But what it does is that you have kids in Nigeria, which is a country where the currency is the naira. Yeah, there's hardly, I mean, healthcare is expensive if yeah. you want to get quality healthcare. And I visited a school in Nigeria, a very good school, and and they were talking about the NHS in England okay. and they were talking about pounds and I remember feeling okay. quite surreal because I thought yeah. these children will step out of this classroom and they can't survive in the environment outside of this yeah, classroom it's because it's not NHS and it's not no, pounds it's you know? <laughs> yeah no that's that's a, that's a great example yeah um, I mean it, it's interesting that you say and, and, and I, I 
I agree that that education should impart a certain amount of pride and 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 in in one's own own heritage. Um, you know, I think at least at least again speaking now, sort of wearing my my European hat. Um, one thing to guard against, though, in doing that is 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 not to go down the slippery uh, slide towards chauvinism. Oh yeah, yeah. Because, but I, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, go ahead. But I think I think yeah. I think there's a difference, though. I mean, so it wouldn't be a kind of jingoistic. Oh, everything was wonderful, but yeah. it would be a kind of telling a history that belongs to to you. Yeah. If that makes sense. So I I look at what how kids are educated in the U.S., for example, and um, and even the, the I think that there's a lot of in the American curriculum that's moving away from um, a kind of oh America was great yeah, uh, from the beginning from the yeah. beginning <laughs> they're moving away yeah. from that yeah. which I think is a very good thing Absolutely. but there's still fundamentally yeah. the premise that this is a country in which one should take pride yeah you know th- there's still and that's what I mean yeah. so so of course tell the truth I mean that's yeah. very important but. Yeah. But if you're telling, if you're teaching African kids that Mongo Park discovered River Niger, I think that th- there's a problem there because yeah. Well, what about the people who are already yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Didn't it would be helpful it? to yeah. yeah, it'd be helpful to start by saying, well, there are lots of people who live there and and you know traded across it, yeah. the rivers, <laughs> yeah. and then maybe he was the first foreigner. Yeah. You know, so so that for me, that's what that's yeah. kind of no. <laughs> and I think children then grow up knowing that they come from a world of of actors yeah that it's not because i think there's a sense in which a lot of african history is told from the point of view of africans being passive yeah you know so so well because i'm just thinking wait hold on we're all just mm. sort of sitting there waiting for mongo park to arrive it, it, yeah it, it, well again i mean you 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 may be this this may surprise you but you know my country again cyprus a you know small mediterranean island and and you know the the and this is where i think going back to your um your your sense that you know colonial peoples were became complicit in mm. in you know in this in this narrative our historical narrative you know and 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 it's a you know it's a rich documented history our historical narrative is all about oh you know we're small weak everybody conquered us you know and and it's a struggle to maintain our identity and and it wasn't until i started reading about you know Cypriot pre-Hellenic history, so mm. Bronze Age, right, going really back, far back, mm. um, that I started discovering that hey, actually there was a lot going on in this place, and th- these guys were not passive mm. victims yeah. waiting for the next wave of conquest, yep. but they were actually, you know, fully engaged yeah. in in the world of their time. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, and I entirely agree with you; mm. it fully resonates. Mm. Um, and, and sorry that I'm I'm kind no, of I'm hugging, hugging the mic here. No, no, but no, but I'm very curious because yeah. I was going to ask you now, tell me about the relationship between Cyprus and Greece and Turkey. I'm, okay, I'm wow, so okay. <laughs> so the, this is, I'm being interviewed now, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, so no, so Cyprus is, is, uh, is, is an island republic in the Eastern Mediterranean, it's part of the British Empire. Uh, the majority of the people uh, on the island, about, I would say roughly 80%, uh, identify as ethnically Greek, and the twenty percent identify as ethnically Turkish, mm. um, and so very much like uh, and again what you said about uh, most you know post-colonial uh, countries was structurally set up to fail. Mm. Well, the same thing happened with uh, to a large extent with with Cyprus. Although I would argue that 
we Cypriots again are also complicit in our own demise. Um, it was set up as a as a republic with uh, a constitution that was arguably uh, not very efficient and not very workable. And so very soon after independence, the two main ethnic groups, the Greeks and the Turks, began to fight. Uh, in, and in 1974, there was a coup that was followed by an invasion by Turkey that effectively partitioned the island. And we're, mm. in a sense, now living through the consequences of, of that, uh, mm. of the 1974 war and the proceeding into communal uh, conflict. The island is at peace at the moment mm. to the extent that, you know, 50,000 uh, soldiers on a on a small island can be called peace, but but at least there's no fighting. Mm. Um, and politically, what's the structure? I mean, politically, it's it's an it's it's a liberal democracy. It's a member of the European Union. Uh, the government-controlled parts, uh, meaning the Greek separate parts, are mm. still the internationally recognized Republic of Cyprus, uh, and they are uh, a member state of the EU. But the other. The, the Turkish Cypriot uh, uh, sector is, is a self-declared uh, republic that is recognized only by Turkey and oh. economically and uh, uh, politically are, is, is quite dependent on Turkey. And there are efforts to reunify and you know, well, I think many Cypriots want to get back together again, especially under the umbrella of, of the EU. Mm. Um, and there are efforts to, uh, you know, to to, to make that happen, but you know, I, I mean, I was I was four when the Turkish invasion happened mm. in in Cyprus, and now I'm 47, mm. and we're you know, <laughs> and I'm still talking about mm. the the negotiations and the solution and the you know, no. mm. we live with our history. Yeah, we do, we do. Um, let's talk a little bit now about uh, your identity. Um, as as an African, as 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 a woman, how has that informed and shaped your your writing? Ah, uh, my identity as an, as an African. Sometimes, I mean, correct me if I'm yeah. getting it wrong. No, 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 no. Yeah? no, no, no. Identity. I I don't know what I don't know because that is what I am. Yeah. No, I guess the reason I was going to say something a bit sarcastic, but I thought I would no, be say kind. it. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that this this sort of question, the question of identity, happens only when you're not a straight white man. Okay. Where, when your straight white man writes yeah. about straight white men, which really is writing about identity, yeah. nobody because because it's nobody seen calls as, it yes, identity. Okay. It's seen as the Guilty. invisible standard. <laughs> okay. No, I don't think I don't think it's about you. I think it's about a larger, just the larger yeah. way we think about you know yeah. uh, the way the world works. I um I, for me identity is always a shifting thing. Really, I mean I think of myself as an Igbo woman, mm -hmm. as a Nigerian, and. And now as an African, because I, I started to think of myself as an African when I left Nigeria. Yeah. And when I got to the U.S., I suddenly realized that I was an African because my identity shifted. And that's also when I realized I was black. Because in Nigeria, I never thought of myself as black. Race was just not part of yeah. part of identity. Um, in Nigeria, I thought of myself as Christian and Igbo, mm. because those were the markers of identity. Yeah. In the U.S., I became African and black. Um, yeah. I guess female I've always been. <laughs> so that doesn't change very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and for me, identity is a very interesting thing because, and I have to say that I became interested in identity only when I moved to the US. In Nigeria, I didn't. I just didn't have time to, I, I, you know, I just, it wasn't a thing. I think America is a very interesting place because of the, 
I think because of the way that it's a country that has so many different people. Yeah. And so it forces identity on you. And it can be a complicated thing. I didn't at first want to be black because I discovered in America that black was not, that black was an identity that had so many negative stereotypes attached yeah. to it. And coming from Africa as I did, I thought, you know, you people must be crazy. Right? There's, you know, black is perfect. <laughs> and, um, and it took a lot of reading on my part, reading yeah. African-American history to, to make the decision to embrace the identity that America had given me. Yeah. But it's also a complicated thing because it means that um, it's kind of an added layer that sometimes one can do without, yeah. if that makes sense. You know, somebody reacts to you in a certain way yeah. and suddenly race becomes one possible reason for it and it yeah. can be exhausting. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, increasingly, being female means that um, I think it, even as a child, I was very much aware that the world was not as fair yeah. to girls and women as it was to boys and men. Yep. And that is certainly it, true. It never made sense yeah. to me. I mean, I remember just being told things like, oh, you can't go see the masquerades, only the boys can. And I would say, but why? And they'd be like, oh, because girls can't. And it never quite made sense to me. I just thought, this, does, this is just dumb. Yeah. And now as an adult, I mean, getting older, I think I became angrier about gender injustice. Yep. And, and I still remain flamingly angry about okay. it. Well, <laughs> you're I doing like a good job of not, not <laughs> reflecting that anger, I have to say. Um, I, so I think, I think all of those things inform my writing. But, I, but I, yeah. I think of my fiction as storytelling. I don't start off my fiction thinking I'm now going to write about the terrible injustices. I want to tell stories of human beings. Yeah. Um, and I want to tell them honestly. And I want to tell them in the way that human beings are yeah. flawed. But when I write nonfiction, when I write articles and essays, or when I speak, yeah, I think that's when I... Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, because you, you've written and spoken elo very eloquently about feminism. Mm. And again, if I can quote something back to you, um, you said, my own definition is a of a feminist uh, is a man or a woman who says there's a problem with gender as it is today and we must fix it. Uh, we must do better. All of us, men and women, must do better. And I should have put the emphasis on man rather than woman. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Indeed. I just realized. <laughs> but um, so you, you, you are of, uh, of the school that believes that men should be feminists yes, too. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I, I don't think it makes yeah. sense. We can change women. We can change everything with women. If men remain the same, yeah. then it makes no difference. Do you, do you see any change, if I, if I may ask? Um, hmm. I mean, now there's all of this talk about women coming forward to talk about sexual harassment. Yeah. And, um, yes and no. Okay. So I'm happy that yeah. this is happening. I yeah. only just hope that it's a beginning. Yeah. I hope that it's not, and I hope that there won't be backlash because the thing that happens with things of this sort is, you know, we sort of celebrate and we get very excited and then there's backlash and then everything goes back to the same as it was before. Yeah. I, I think that there's still a lot, of, a lot of work to be done. I think that, um, that women get sexually harassed is terrible, but equally terrible is the way that women are diminished at work, mm -hmm. the way that women are diminished at home, the way that uh, society and cultures construct the humanity of women. I mean, yeah. so I sometimes I worry that these sort of very garish, almost cartoonish examples of sexual harassment yeah. will become the standard 
and and I hope that won't happen. Um, meaning, meaning, meaning that we just because a woman hasn't gone through a Harvey Weinstein-like assault yeah. doesn't mean that she has not gone through gender-related injustice. It. Got yeah. it. Yeah, I understand. I understand. And again, to what extent is is there an educational dimension to this? Hmm. The, the, I mean, I I'm, I think education is is essential. I also think the kind of education is essential because yeah. you can you can educate women and you can you can teach them about their own inferiority and they can they can internalize it. Yeah. Um, so so I do think edu- education is important, but again, I think the kind of education is important. Yeah. You know, I, I was I was reflecting. I mean, even say again, we 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 spoke quite a bit about history and and even the way we teach history. Mm. I mean, I kn- I know that's changing, but but. Uh, the traditional approach has always been, let's learn about all the great men yeah. and all the great battles they they yeah. fought and yeah. won or or even yep. you know lost, yep. <laughs> and, then, yep. and let's celebrate that. But yeah. we we never talk about you know uh, unless they were there were queens, yep. they were queens. We never talk about uh, yep. about the women. Um, and again, if, if I'm quote if I can quote you. You said at one point, masculinity is a hard, small cage, and we put boys inside this cage. Mm. So to a certain extent, it's also about educating men how to be yes. men, boys yes. how to be men. Yeah, how yeah. To, and for me, increasingly, yeah. I think how to be human. <clears throat> yeah. Because even that idea of, you know, we teach him how to be a man, and, and it just becomes yeah. what we're saying to boys is we're not giving them the language to talk about their emotions. We tell yeah. them you shouldn't cry. Um, we tell them you have to be the strong one. You have to be, and I think what what it then means is that w- I think that b- boys and men are taught to internalize so much, and you're not allowed to show it. And I really yeah. think that that that's why I think that part of the reason there's violence, there's domestic violence, uh, it's because I- in some ways it's that men who are <laughs> I know this sounds harsh, but are emotionally crippled. So, so because I, of that, it comes I, out I, as violence. You know, I, I know. If Quite a few women who would agree with you, including probably my wife. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not wrong on that. I, I mean, there's, yeah, there, there is still a um, uh, a set of expectations, I mm. suppose, mm. about what it is, you know, what mm. it is to, you know, mm. uh, to be to be a man. Yeah. Um, that that involve, you know, being in in control of one's emotional state. Yes, uh, which is, but yeah. the thing about it is yeah. that nobody, because men are human, yeah. shockingly, um, <laughs> nobody can ever, I yeah. don't think there's a human being who can always be in control of no. their emotions. Yeah. I don't think there's a human being on earth who can always be strong and who can always have it all together. And so to put that expectation on boys is terrible. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it, and I think that's the reason there's so many unhappy relationships in the world, heterosexual relationships, because mm. men don't have the tools they need, and women get frustrated because actually, women and the reason women have the tools is not because women are morally better, because they're not. And I think for me also, my feminism is is very keen on saying let's not have double standards. Women are not angels. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to let them be human. Yeah. And if they make mistakes, we need to treat their mistakes like we treat the mistakes of men. Yeah. But it's also that women are giving these tools early on because women are expected to care for men. So women, you know, the tools that women are given that men are not. Yeah. Um, and it's a strange kind of thing because on the one hand, a woman is told you need to cater to a man. 
But then on the other hand, she's somehow, she's told, because, you know, men can't do anything for themselves. So you cook and clean for them. You, you know, you support them emotionally. Yeah. You tell them they're wonderful. And you, but then on the other hand, you're also told that um, men have to be in positions of power because they're men. And there's yeah. something about it that can be contradictory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I this has been, been a lot of fun. And I, I feel like we could, you know, we, we could carry on, but I, I think our time is is, is coming up. But uh, I do want to ask you one uh, one question that we ask everyone on uh, on the podcast, uh, which is to draw on your your own domain area of expertise uh, and tell us that if there was one thing that you you thought everybody should, one piece of knowledge that everybody should uh, should possess and, and should be taught, what would that be? Oh, everyone should read literature. From starting from the age of three, okay, <laughs> and it should be um, taught not as as a stiff subject in which you talk about theme, but as a loving, freewheeling, enjoyable, pleasurable ride. Storytelling, in yes. other words. Jimonda, thank you very much for sharing your wise words with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.